When I was um, a young lad, my grandfather, who was really a carpenter by trade, and a really good one, he built kind of like every house on our street. He was uh, one of those Renaissance guys, and uh, I didn't think anything of it at the time because he was my grandfather. My grandfather did all these things, and he was phenomenal. Now I look back, and I'm like, wow, he was really broad. Um, and one of the things that he did really well is he broke horses. Um, he would receive a lot of um, horses from people that, that I would call them fractured or just kind of broken in the head. And usually broken horses in the head come from broken people. And um, one of the things he taught me early on, he goes, there's really fundamental two ways, Mark, he said that you can train a horse, by domination or by mutual submission. And um, what he meant by that is, is the vast majority of people that we would get horses from tried the domination route. They'd get on that horse and they'd ride the buck out of it and everything else and just, you know, make that horse submit to them. But he made this statement, and I think I found it to be true. He says, if you use domination on a horse, you'll never be able to trust them with a beginner. And that's kind of what he decided that he wanted to do is he wanted to make horses safe. And he wanted them to be trustworthy and they wanted him. So he, he, he started a practice and I think it was in many ways before, uh, people, certain people like, uh, Monty Roberts got famous, but, um, it, it was really the same way. If you get on YouTube and you're kind of a horse lover and you love training, and, um, I know that's going to be to all of the young girls in our service today and you young guys, well, um, Get into extreme sports. <laughs> Monty, um, when he was 13, became uh, fascinated with horses and he had the opportunity to be uh, sent to uh, uh, Nevada and where he studied Mustangs, wild horses. Horses that had never been haltered, never been ridden. And he began to kind of notice something about them in terms of certain communication things. And so Monty... Um, started this thing called hooking up and then that kind of got adopted in a bad way of dating and uh so he changed it's no longer hooking up it's joining up and uh you can understand why the change um basically his theory was this i will never use domination over a horse i will always invite them to choose to submit to me and if you get online and watch some of his videos, they're fascinating. One of the things that I saw, and it was, it's compelling to me, is that Monty would walk into a circle pin, they call it a circle pin, and he does training. And you can see some of them. He, he will have executives from some of the biggest companies in the world. And you think, a horse trainer teaching executives? Yeah. Why? Because he's teaching them how to lead. He's teaching them that there's a way to lead that does not involve coercion. It does not involve threat. And what he'll do is he'll walk into an arena with a Mustang that's never been saddled, never been bridled, and never um, had any kind of human contact other than being captured and put in this arena. And in 30 minutes, he goes from introduction to that horse to he's riding it. 30 minutes. I've witnessed it. It's phenomenal. And the entire time, what he's doing is he's teaching these executives about how do you lead people? How do you lead them with not threat? How do you lead them through mutual submission? He walks into the arena. You'll notice it if you watch it. He walks in. He gets the horse's attention. And then he turns and he walks away from the horse. And he stays aloof until the horse takes interest in him. 
You can tell how a horse is thinking or feeling by just their head. If their head is up, they want to fight you. If their head is to the left or right, they are ignoring you. If their head is flat and their ears are forward, they're very interested in you and they're willing to submit to you. And he waits until that horse makes that decision, until he walks up to touch them. Because if he doesn't have that partnership, all he's trying to do is coerce and force a 12, 14, 1800 pound horse. And if you have any sense in you at all, you don't try and do that. This passage is about a God who chose not to use his force, though he could. He chose never to use force, domination, coercion in any way to lead you but rather through the mutual, gracious, faithful love of a father. Why is that important? Because what this subject or this passage deals with today is something that every one of us in this room face, and that is temptation, sin. And what the father is speaking about in this text Is how do you join up with God in a way that enables you to resist temptation, to win the battle, and to overcome and mature in areas that maybe in the previous years of your life you haven't been able to win? How do you join up with God? It's important because as the text kind of unveils... If you don't learn to resist temptation, the consequences of it can be devastating. You can bring disaster into your life. 23,000 people died, the snake bites and and the, the angry angels. The text is really the father saying, I have an invitation to you. Would you come and mutually submit to me? Would you come into a relationship with me? I'm not going to use force to do it. I'm going to invite you. And if you do, you will endure, you will resist, and you will win. It's important because all of us are susceptible to temptation. Every person in this room is. That's what the text says. Verse 13 is the central verse of this whole text. And we will look at verses prior to it and after it. But verse 13 is really the apex, the central aspect of this. When it says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to people, man. Temptation is common to us. It should not shock us. We should not like, wow, I'm so shocked. I'm amazed that I'm tempted by this or I'm battling with this. That's his whole point. Why is that important? Because what the enemy tries to do is one of two things. Convince you that there are sins out there that are way beyond you. You would never commit pride. Or convince you that you are so unique and you are facing something that nobody else has ever faced. And you are likely if not almost mandated to lose this battle because this is such a unique temptation that nobody else has ever won that what God wants you to understand is that it's common 
That's why he uses the nation of Israel. He goes back in the story of Israel. Even though this is a Greek audience, the reality is they know the story of the Exodus. They know the story of people trying to figure out how to trust God. And they know the story of some of the mistakes they've made. And what he's going back there for is to say, this is common. This is what happens. Learn from them. Observe them. But don't please ever go to the point where you think, wow, I will never be tempted by that sin. Or, I will never win this battle. It's so unique. It's common. You can't be a male in our culture today without being tempted by the sexual images that get put in front of you every day. I think it's impossible. I think if you're a male and you're not tempted by the sexualization of our world and you're not tempted by all the language and and all the sexualization of, of advertising and everything else, if you're not tempted in any way by that, you're probably, I've already probably done your funeral. You're in heaven. Because you're going to. This world is, I mean, we've taken sexualization into the schools. What in my day was pornography, we're using today as curriculum. And it's not just there, it's on the internet, it's on phones, and it's just, it's like my friend Carol said, you used to have to hunt to find sin. Nowadays, it hunts for you. And it comes after you. And if you're a guy in this world, you're going to battle with it, and you're going to wake up every day, and you're going to walk into a world that wants to seduce you and wants to use every mechanism it can to get you to be to that place of unfaithfulness. I think it's different for women. I'm not an expert in that area, but I think as much as I have listened and watched people, if you're a woman today and you have any interaction at all on social media, you're going to be tempted to believe the lie that everyone else's life out there is perfect and yours is kind of a mess. And then you're really going to be tempted when you you see somebody post, I went to so-and-so with my best friends and you're not in the picture. And you think to yourself, wow, I thought I was really good friends with them. And now you realize you're really not. You're on the outside. And you close up your Facebook and you go to the refrigerator and you just eat. Not because you're hungry, but because you're rejected. Because you feel outside. And if you're a woman today, and, and guys will have the same one, but I, I hear more from ladies, is they look upon that Facebook and it becomes a message to them of, in many ways, the failure of their life or the fear of their life. And yet it seems strangely we're addicted to it. If you're a business person, you're going to be tempted today to put profits over people. You're going to be tempted to do less or you know with less people more things you're going to be tempted to put more things on them and you're going to be tempted to cut corners why because inflation is going like this and if you have any association with fuel it's going through the roof and and it's hard to get your hands on it and you're going to be tempted and if you're in politics you're always going to be tempted to cave in on your integrity to simply garner some form of success and acceptance I don't think we should throw stones at people like that. I really don't. I, I don't think we should mock women and, and, and social media or men and their issues of, oh, you're just a bunch of perverts. I, I, that is such a tragic and simple way to reduce a person so that you can, if you will, malign them. No, we live in this world and sin is there and it's going to be a temptation. That's his point. Don't be shocked by it. 
Don't lie to yourself and think that there are sins out there that you won't commit. And the reason is, is because not only is temptation common to us, temptation is common in us. In the text, verse 13 again, if you'll go back there, there's a three-word phrase. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is, and here's the phrase, common to man. It's actually one word in the Greek. It is uh, man-like or person-like. One, one translator wrote it this way. Temptation is part of the fabric of being human. Why? Because it's in you. Paul describes it in this way in, verse, uh, in chapter 7 of Romans. He says, I have this battle between my true nature, that which is birthed of God, that which is renewed by God, this new heart, and the, if you will, members of my body. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about my flesh. He's talking about my mind. Your mind is not glorified when you come to Christ. If it was glorified, then Romans 12.2 makes no sense. Because Romans 12.2 says that we need to conform our mind. We need to transform our mind. Not to the images of this world and to the patterns of this world. But to the patterns of God. And the reality is Paul says in the scriptures. I've learned if you will to buffet my body. To train my body. Why? Because my flesh still desires things that aren't good. My mind still has patterns in it of the flesh. My heart is renewed. The spirit of God is in me. But that spirit and that heart reside in a flesh that needs to be transformed. Sin is in me, just like it's in you. And it causes us sometimes to do things that almost seems unexplainable. Probably most of you know the story of Oscar Schindler. Uh, You've seen the movie Schindler's List, marvelous movie. Really is, almost should be mandatory watching. Little graphic, it's heavy, but it's needed. 1,200 people Oscar saved. He's a courageous person. They so honored him that many of those that he saved took gold pieces out of their mouth and they molded it together and they made a ring for him in honor of him. But do you know the rest of the story of Oscar's life? After what the movie is about? Do you know that he left his wife? He was unfaithful. The rest of his life, he was a womanizer. You know that he became an alcoholic and a destitute and went through every dime of his life and became completely homeless. And do you remember the part of the story where in a moment of desperation, he took the very ring that they took the gold out of their mouth and made in terms of a gift to him. And he sold it so that he could buy a bottle of schnapps. What causes a man who lived with such courage and strength to fight Hitler, to rescue 1,200 Jews, to continue their family line, to, to be in many ways a hero. What caused that man to betray his wife and to sleep with a bunch of women and to drink himself into poverty and to ultimately take the very ring that they gave him in honor of him and to peddle it for one night of drunkenness? My friend, it's the same thing that's in you. Sin resides in us. 
I had a professor when I was in seminary who used to make this statement. He said, there's, and he was talking to just pastors in this class. He said, pastors, there's no sin out there that you can't commit. I remember the first time I heard it, I thought to myself, that is just a bunch of psycho babble. It's garbage. And I had a list in my head of all the grotesque and sick sins that I knew I would never commit. Now, I was having this war with him. I, I didn't speak it. I just had it in my mind. And as I was having this war, kind of creating this list of sins that I knew I would never do that. And then he made this statement. And this is the one that zung me. It just kind of... And he says, and if, by the way, you think that there's a list of sins, and I had them. <laughs> and if you think that there's a list of sins that you won't ever commit, you have taken your first step towards committing them. Oh. It's been 40 years since I first heard that statement. I think he's right. Because what does it mean to say that there are sins out there that I'll never do? That's a statement of pride. That's a statement that, you know what? I believe that there are things that I will never commit to. I will never do. I will never be so dumb, so weak, so whatever. I won't. And the scripture says that before a fall, what comes first? Pride. I think he's right. And that's why Paul wants you to understand. All of us are susceptible to temptation. All of us. And there's not a sin out there in the world that you in the right or wrong circumstance wouldn't be able to do. And I think he's correct in saying, and if you think that there's a list of things you would never ever do, you've taken the first step towards it. Temptation is common in us. But that's not where God wanted to leave us. Because look at the end of 13. What's his vision? He will provide a way out so that you can stand. So that you can endure it. So that you can win. How do we do that? He wants you to know. Temptation can be won. You don't have to give in. And one of the things from this text, not moving anywhere else, but just from this text in scripture that we understand is that if we're going to overcome it, then we have to be the kind of people that can learn from those who have walked in front of us. We have to be able to learn from people whom we have observed or learned lessons. So that's the whole point of the introduction up to 13. He starts in verse 8 and he says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died then he talks about uh, another factor we should not test the lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes or we should not grumble i don't know about you but this one gets a little personal i mean the whole thing of sexual immorality okay the whole thing of you know testing the lord we'd have to look at that one but the whole grumble thing oh good night i think we're all condemned on that one what happens you arouse the anger of the destroying angel Whoops. But notice what he says that next. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples. And the reason God says, I wrote them down. 
was for you. Humility enables you to learn from the lessons of those who have walked in front of you, your parents, your grandparents, your friends. Pride says, I'll never commit that. I'll never be so stupid. I I will never cave into that. And God says to us, Temptation can be overcome, but you must exercise a level of humility that allows you to learn from those who have walked in front of you. When I was studying back in Boston, I'd go back for a week at a time. And to save money, we would often share in hotels. And one gentleman called me one day and he goes, hey, um, I just want to ask you if you'd be willing to share in a hotel room. And I said, absolutely. He says, but before you say yes, I need to let you know that I was unfaithful to my wife. I lost my job as a pastor. Uh, I was involved in an earlier cohort. I, I was suspended. I was put out and I've been in this process of restoration. And I, I didn't want to surprise you with that when we came to Boston. Just if you don't want a room with me, I understand. And I said, no, Tim, I, I respect that. I appreciate you telling me. I, I would be happy to room with you as long as this that we have no areas of our life that we can't talk through. He agreed. We talked through all of the things, why he felt like he did what he did. What struck me in our multiple conversations was one night, all the losses. He lost the respect of his sons. There's few things I cherish more than that. He lost the trust of his wife. He lost the trust of a church. I'll never forget that night, feeling the loss that he faced. God says, if you have any sense of humility and judgment, Mark, you'll learn from that. You'll learn... Because sin resides in us. The ability to be tempted is for all of us. The gentleman that when I was back in Denver that I interned under, he was an incredibly successful pastor. Phenomenal. His book sold. Spoke all over the world. And then his three affairs came out. I'll never forget the day when I was in my inner city church pastoring away and in walks the man that I once looked up to, that I once called my mentor and he was selling me paper to make a living. Nothing against salesmen and selling paper. Uh, That's not my point. God gives us this and says, this is an example. And it's not the only one he'll give you. He'll give you ones in your sphere. He'll give you ones in front of you and your parents or your grandparents. And he will plead with you if you have sense, if you have sound judgment, he says in the text, you'll learn. 
And what will happen to you as you look at them, it's not that you become invincible, but you learn to hate sin. And you learn to recognize it has a toll that is painful to pay. Learn from those who have walked in front of us. And secondly, learn the tools of resistance. There are three of them. The first one is, is I want you to learn to fight, he says. In verse 13, he says that no temptation has seized you, captured you, imprisoned you. He, he's not taking a nice little walk. He, he tells us the temptation is about war. It's about capturing you. It's about seizing you. It's about imprisoning you. Now, I don't know what your theory of demons are, but the fact is they're fallen angels. I don't think angels sleep. I am quite convinced they don't recognize national holidays. <laughs> I'm utterly convinced the demonic spirits don't take weekends off. And so they're sitting down there in hell or wherever they're at in this whole universe and they're conspiring and they're scheming and they're thinking about destroying your marriage, about overwhelming your children, about turning you into uh, an anxiety riddled and fear and worried consumed individual. And they are at all times strategizing and thinking about ruining your life and they never stop. As best I understand, they don't need to eat. So they don't even take out time for lunch. The, the language here is there's a fight. And God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You're in a battle for your soul. Now here's the important part. You can win this. For those of you who have coached or just been involved in athletics, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen those teams that when they hit them, you know, the floor or a wrestler that goes on the mat, that knows in his head, I don't have a chance in heaven to win. You know, you've watched them. And they walk out there and they are defeated before they even leave the bench. They play defeated, they act defeated, their heads are hung, and, and they don't expect, they, they just hope they don't get embarrassed. You've also seen the person walk out on the mat who looks at that person and says, I dare you to think you're going to get in the second round. In fact, my prediction, they may not say this, they're just thinking this. My prediction is, within a minute, you're going to be shoulder blades to the floor. Those two wrestlers, those two basketball teams, or, you know, those individuals, they play differently. Why? It's because one understands we can win and the other believes I am defeated before I hit the floor. God does not want you to be the latter. That's why he tells you. And he knows that you'll fight differently if you know in your heart, I can win this thing. We can win this thing. This temptation is, does not have to be my future. I can overcome. 
And he wants you to know that and he wants you to be convinced of that. Why? Because you will fight differently. You will walk differently. You will think differently if you understand that God says, I will never allow sin to ultimately crush you. That's not, it's well within your ability with my help, God says, we can win this. You have to learn how to fight with the right thinking. And secondly, and these aren't opposite at all, you have to learn when to run. Verse 14 says, therefore, my dear friends, I want you to flee idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? You're trusting an idol made of humans to do what only Christ, the perfect sacrifice, can do? Run from that. That idol can't give you a day in heaven. It can't remedy one iota of your sin. You're talking about the precious blood of Christ that was sacrificed for you. Run! There are things that you need to learn to run from. I would imagine that uh, there are people in your workplace that text you all the time. And if you're a woman, some of them are going to be guys. And you know when that text has crossed over from business to now we're talking personal issues. You need to throw that phone in the Willamette River, drive over the bridge. It's worth every dime that you lose. You know that when that text moves from doing business, talking about appointments, talking about clients, moving over, processing this gentleman's disappointment with his wife or this gentleman's frustration with his children. And all of a sudden now you're starting to make this emotional connection. And God says in that moment, run, run as fast as you can. Because you're walking down a path that can end everything. You have to learn to flee things that are false like idols Things that offer relief when in reality it's a prison. Learn to run. The scripture says, do not set your foot on the path of the wicked. Don't even walk with them. Now I know some of you are called your marvelous evangelists and you say, hey pastor, how are we ever going to reach the lost? I, I, I get that. Just be careful that you're not lying to yourself and using your evangelism as a way to hang out in seedy places with people that might lead you to a place where you will compromise and lose everything. Make sure that if you're going to evangelize the lost that you're actually evangelizing, not just hanging out for the next three or four years. Make sure that friendship evangelism is actually that. It's not exclusively religious friendship with no evangelism. Don't let God talk. Spiritual stuff become the very thing that actually lies to you and seduces you into a relationship where all of a sudden you realize you're willing to give up everything for this. Learn to run. There's a time where you just have to recognize this is wickedness uh, or, or this could head in a really bad direction and you have to learn that God, I need to flee.
And lastly, and the tools of resistance, learn to lean on the one who loves you. If you're not convinced of the Father's love, if you're absolutely not convinced of God's gracious love, then you're going to live your life in fear that if you fail, God will pull his love from you. This text says God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will be with you every step of the way. And I love the next one. But when you're tempted, God is right there with you. And he will provide a way out so that you can stand. You see, when I'm convinced that God loves me, no matter what, when I'm convinced of the unrelenting, unquestioned grace of God, it doesn't produce a license to sin. Uh, If that's the case, then Titus 2.11 is wrong. Because this says grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness. Grace inspires me to resist temptation. Grace infuses a strength within me. Why? Because I know that God is faithful. And the thing that I think that will give you more strength to resist temptation is not a desire to perform but a confidence in God's love, a deep hatred of sin because you recognize and you've learned, you've humbly learned from those who've walked in front of you. My grandfather always said, there's two ways you break a horse. You can use domination. But he looked me in the eye and he said, but you'll never trust that horse with a new beginner. Or you can choose mutual submission where they trust you. And there's a bond that is made. And at that place, that horse not only will learn from you, but will protect you. There's two ways to think about God and temptation. There's a God who's sitting back wondering, are you going to make the right choice? And if you don't, I'll slap you. I'll come after you. Or as your God said, come with me, join with me. Satan wants to take you out. But I know your strengths and I know your weaknesses and I will never ever allow a temptation to come into your life that will destroy you. And I will provide a way. I'll partner with you. And we'll win this one. A number of years ago, I received a horse. It's not mine. It wasn't mine back then. Still not mine. Best kind of horse to have. <laughs> you get to ride it. You just don't pay for anything. It's glorious. Uh, when this horse came to me, it, it had a, a really shaky beginning, meaning it, it wasn't trained well, and somebody was put on the back of this horse, and a horse does what it's normally kind of instinctively trained, if you will, instinctually to do. And that is if you have something on your back that you don't like, you throw it off. And it did. And it threw this young lady off and fractured her spine. And because of that, the owner put the horse away, never touched it. In a couple of years, at least. I had a conversation with her and I said, hey, you know, your horse is going to get to the point where you just can't break it. Patterns are going to be set. Would you mind letting me train it? 
<laughs> she was like, here, <laughs> you can have it. I said, well, I don't really want to have it. <laughs> then I got to pay for it. I took this little horse into the arena. I'm a Roberts fan. I'm really a fan of my grandfather. We made contact and then I walked away. And I stayed away until her inquisitiveness got the best of her. She put her head down and she came up to me and said, with her head, I'm interested in you. I don't think you're here to hurt me. I'll submit to you. We've had a wonderful relationship over the years. I'd put a beginner on her today. It's not because I'm a great horse trainer. Please don't. Don't bring me your horses or your dogs. (laughs) But really, in many ways, breaking horses is a lot like walking with God. He never uses his power to force you. He invites you. Do you want to win this battle? Come with me. Trust me. We'll do this together. I'll teach you how to fight. I'll teach you how to run. Most of all, come lean on me and trust my heart. And together, God's vision is this. You're going to mature. Your mind is going to be transformed. You're going to grow a disgust for sin. It's not that you're apart from any sin because you're not. Because sin resides in you. It's in your flesh. But your spirit, as Paul says, you will buffet. You will subdue that body. Because you've partnered with God. When you join up with God, you have the power to resist sin and endure. Not because he forces you, but because you've yielded your heart in submission to him. You'll win the day.